Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology and occasionally talk about our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Laura Anna Busamante, and she is a postdoc in the field of computational psychiatry working with Dr. Diana Bach at the Cognitive Control and Psychopathology Laboratory at Washington University, and that's in St. Louis. Lauda researches cognitive effort, and today she talks with us about what cognitive effort is, how cognitive effort can relate to physical efforts, how much physical effort we're willing to put into things. She speaks about how we can test how much cognitive effort we're willing to put in, and she also looks at cognitive effort in depression and anxiety. Hi, I'm Laura Anna Bustamante. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Washington University in St. Louis. My work is about how we make decisions about when and how much effort to engage in our environment. So for example, let's say you get home and you have some math problems you have to work on, but you could also play video games. How are you going to be deciding between these different options? And the theory that I work on is called the expected value of control theory. And it basically says you're gonna do something that is pretty straightforward on its face. You're basically gonna think for each activity, how rewarding, what's the potential reward associated with that? And then also how much effort is it gonna require from me? And so, you know, your math homework, you really have to block everything else out, focus, do it. That's a lot of effort, but getting an A could be pretty awesome. And the video game, that's going to be a little bit easier, but the potential reward is maybe a little lower. And then the theory goes, you'll combine those two and you'll pick the one that has the best expected value. Uh, So for example, maybe if it's the evening, you're tired of doing maths all day, you would choose video gaming. And something that I think about in my work is the different factors that are going to affect those decisions, thinking about how those decisions work in different domains, like in more cognitive settings, like something like math homework or more physical. So you could also make a decision between, oh, am I going to walk my dog or am I going to let the dog out in the back? And then trying to think about how different people handle these decisions differently, how that might affect their behavior and daily life. So the set of cognitive processes that I study are called cognitive control. Your listeners might also have heard about executive functions. These are higher order cognitive processes that help guide your cognition towards a particular goal that you have. And it can involve things like inhibition. So you want to focus on one thing while ignoring other things, things like attention, having to hold things in mind called working memory cognitive flexibility. So you're working and then your colleague comes in and they ask you a totally unrelated question. You have to switch. And so this umbrella of cognitive functions are super important for success in life. And I think researchers have been very keen. And I think people in their own lives, if you think about self-improvement, are very keen to enhance these functions somehow. And so when I talk about cognitive effort, I'm thinking about the actual decision-making processes about how you're going to use your cognitive control. So 
right now. You could be listening to this podcast. There's probably something else you could be paying attention to. And the actual toggling in and out of paying attention to what I'm saying is a decision about cognitive effort. Just a clarification question. Is cognitive effort something we have control over? So these processes that you just mentioned, is this something we can decide to do or not? Or is it kind of just happening in the background? Is it a bit of both? How does that work? That is such a great question. So the first thing I'll say that I really noticed and was kind of surprised by early in the research is that these theories we work with and models apply at all time scales. And so even on a very moment to moment subconscious basis where you're not thinking about it, things like which direction that you look in or which information that you're processing more so, those are also cognitive effort decisions. However, there is a layer of it that I think we're probably hyper aware of as we go through our day. And so you maybe are really faced with these moments of the extreme conflict, like you remembered that you're really supposed to do that homework and you see your video gaming set and you kind of think, oh, that should be a little more fun now. And so when it's more conscious or when you're more aware of it, that can still be very much driven by external factors in your environment. So I gave the example of the video game, you know, for example, a notification could pop up on your phone. And so things in the world are going to be driving you particular directions. But what cognitive control is actually really helpful for is prioritizing what you need to be processing. And so I think that there is a lot of control that we do have and a lot of really cool re research in psychology about strategies that you can take if you have something that's really important to you to set yourself up to be able to achieve that goal. And before we get into your studies, there's a question I wanted to ask you first. So you identify as a neurodivergent and disabled researcher. Would you be able to share a bit about how your lived experience like contributes to your research and, and your work? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of backstory on this. Some of my research involves these decision-making processes about effort, specifically in psychiatric disability. A small example would be, you know, if someone would be experiencing depression, they might get this symptom that's called apathy, you're a little bit less motivated, that might affect these types of decisions. And so that is research that I've gotten into and we'll talk about. But when I come to this research, I am part of the population that is being studied. And so when I was early in graduate school, I had to take a medical leave related to the onset of my mental health disability. And over the course of kind of returning to school, recovering, learning a lot of tools about keeping myself well and managing things, I came across two important frameworks. So the first one is the disability framework and conceptualizing disability as coming from a mismatch between the individual and their environment and not locating the disability within any pathology of the individual themselves. And this really resonated with me. I thought about some of the extra work that I had to do to keep myself well, certain things that I could do when I was a college student, like pulling an all-nighter to study, that now I have to be really conscious and careful about sleep and stress. And so I really felt that kind of extra burden and felt like I really deserve to have accommodations, things that are tweaked that 
don't put me in that situation where I'm compromising my health. So the first one was about disability, and I researched the Americans with Disabilities Act and saw that indeed for pretty much all of the mental health disability, all the psychiatric labels that you have, that those would qualify. So that was very validating. The second one is neurodiversity. And so the idea of valuing the diversity of minds that we have, this again comes with a strong push to not pathologize these differences. And I think excitingly, when I hear neurodiversity scholars more recently, they're also going to talk about that you don't default to pathologizing, but through some type of community consensus process, the groups of people in the community with lived experience can also say, well, to me, I experience this aspect as pathologizing, and maybe that's a type of place where we could place the emphasis of our research and also of our social changes. And so when I say that I identify as neurodivergent, that is, Another, I think, helpful framing is that it's a divergence from neuro norms. So here's an example norm. When you go to class, you should be able to sit still for 50 minutes and attend continuously to a lecturer. And if you don't adhere to that norm, which it can be a lot of people for a lot of reasons, a lot of circumstances, that can have negative repercussions for the individual that's not conforming to the norm. In that sense, they're neurodivergent. And the assertion with the neurodivergence is that they deserve to be in an environment that can adapt to make it accessible for them. And so a really cool, simple change that educators can make in line with the universal design of learning is you can start the class out and say, feel free to use the space however you like. It's okay to move. It's okay to use a fidget toy, whatever it would be. So having all this in mind, thinking both about the neurodiversity and the disability perspectives has huge implications for both clinical psychiatry style research. And also I think psychology and neuroscience research more broadly. We tend to sort people on like a unidimensional scale. So we'll pick some different measure and we'll say, okay, you're high on this measure and you're low on this measure. And we also make certain assumptions about what it means to be on this unidimensional scale. And so something that I really try to bring to my research, and one of the reasons I really love individual differences, is thinking there's so many dimensions on which we differ. And they all interact with each other, and they're going to produce things that are strengths for us, and they're going to produce things that are challenges for us, and really resist that urge to compare or to place any hierarchy on the different style of cognitive functioning that we have as a society. Something that I think is super exciting in psychology research nowadays is that we are starting to have the computational tools to actually be able to say, okay, it's not just that you did better or worse on this task, but instead, can I figure out what was the strategy that this person was using and what was the strategy that this other person is using? And by actually finding out in more detail how different people handle different challenges, instead of just putting them on, oh, okay, well, according to this one strategy that I think should work, for everyone, you're like really bad at that strategy. So 
these are some of the things that I have in mind when I go into this clinical research to try to make more space for solutions for the populations that are being researched that don't involve trying to change them and especially not trying to change aspects of them that they wouldn't themselves label as pathological. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's really interesting to hear a bit more in depth about the ways that we can make these changes and the way we can view these things because like, we are hearing more about how we can accommodate people but to understand what, what is motivating those changes and why that is so important. Yes, and let me just say something quickly. I've led some workshops that I really don't think I even needed to be at, frankly, where groups of people who, for example, all work in an office together, work in a classroom setting, same university, get a little background on what is neurodiversity and start brainstorming what could they implement in their very local context and come up with amazing ideas. And they're coming with things that they say, yeah, we could make this change. And so I think groups of people who want to make their workplaces and education environments more inclusive, the ability is right there for you. Start chatting with your colleagues, start brainstorming. There's a lot of information out there about what we could be doing better. Well, we've already spoken about so many cool things already. So now we're going to talk about your research. So one of your experiments investigated the relationship between cognitive and physical effort. Can you explain this experiment and the findings and then how cognitive and physical effort are related? So something that I've worked a lot in is thinking about measurement. So I can think really about many cool examples about how you're going to make these choices. But at the end of the day, I want to get at some super detailed, quantifiable number that symbolizes these processes and so I mentioned that earlier, this thing called the expected value of control model and saying that we, we think that you're going to weigh costs and benefits. And so we can actually turn that into a formal math theory that basically assigns values to rewards and values to that increasing effort. And so in this experiment, I was trying to make a measure that would capture this thing that I will call the cost of effort. And it's basically how aversive is it to you? How much are you going to avoid it? How much more would you need to be paid to do an effortful task? And so we had 562 participants on an online crowdsourcing platform do this experiment. So what was the experiment? All right, I said, you're an apple farmer, you're harvesting apples in your orchard. On each trial, they were going to see a little virtual tree, and they could press the down arrow key, and the tree would shake, and then give out some apples, and they knew that those apples were worth real money at the end of the experiment. So let's just say they keep harvesting that tree, pressing the down arrow key. You'll keep getting apples, but it's fewer and fewer each time that you harvest. So at some point, maybe you're thinking, I would like to move on to a you know new tree with a replenished supply of apples, but you have to travel to get there. So what did it involve to get to the new reward source? Well, something very standard in these types of tasks is that it takes time to get there. And you can imagine if you were an animal doing this type of task, that might be like how long it takes for you to walk between locations. But in these lab tasks, usually you're just waiting. So a classic finding in these tasks are called patch foraging. Classic finding would be 
if I extend the amount of time that it takes you to get to the new patch, you're going to stay in the patch that you're in and accept those diminishing returns because it's more costly to get to the new tree. And so I can look at how long did you stay in that patch? How long did you accept those depleting rewards? Because it took extra time to travel there. So in this experiment, I'm going to use that same logic, but I'm going to hold the travel time constant. And instead, what I'm going to vary is which effortful task are you going to have to complete when you travel? And so there were four conditions. So there was two cognitive conditions. So they're playing little tasks that we know require these cognitive control skills. You're going to have to pay attention, inhibit something. In this case, it was the multi-source interference task. And basically, you're pressing numbers with keyboard and there's kind of like a tempting keyboard response. And then you have to override that and make the one that's like a little bit less obvious. So that was the high effort cognitive condition would be making that little key press when there's some interfering information that's making it hard to do that. And then the low effort is the key press is super obvious from what you're looking at on the screen. It's like nice, easy breezy. And so for the cognitive, what I'm going to look at is, okay, when you had to do the high effort, how much longer did you stay in the tree accepting the diminishing returns because you didn't want to do the effort associated with getting to the new patch. In the physical effort, they were doing rapid key pressing with their non-dominant pinky finger. And I figured out, or I hope people don't become part of my experiments after this. <laughs> I figured out what's the most number of presses that they could do. And then sometimes they had to do 100% of their maximum and sometimes they had to do 50% of their maximum. And so again, I predicted when they were in that high effort physical condition that they would stay longer in a tree accepting the diminishing returns. What I was able to do is look, okay, different people are going to react differently. So some people are going to really, really, really wait and they really dread doing the hard one. And other people might be almost indifferent to these options. And one thing that we found that was interesting is on average, people were avoiding the high effort. But in this task, we also saw about 15% of participants were actually showing the opposite preference. So they preferred to do the hard, the high effort task over the low effort task. So this was one of the findings from this experiment was that we made a new measure that you can use to get at people's preferences either to avoid a high effort or approach or seek out a high effort task. So what I did is I went ahead and I used some foraging theory mathematical models to pull out this individual differences in this cost of the effort, which you can also think of as just how willing you are to do that effort. And what I found is that across this big group of participants on the crowdsourcing platform, that individuals who were avoiding cognitive effort more were also avoiding physical effort more. And so this was a correlation between those two different domains. There's been some exciting neurobiological evidence of some overlap in the brain areas that make decisions for cognitive versus physical effort. However, there's limited behavioral evidence in terms of individual differences, how these would be related. So 
I truly went in having no idea, you know, which way it would go. But it joins a small literature showing a link between this. So why is this interesting? In most real life behaviors that you do, you're actually going to have to integrate these different types of effort. So if you go on a run, it's not just your physical body that's going to get taxed. This can be a very mentally engaging activity as well. And so for the most part, these two domains of effort have been treated separately. And so this study was a move towards integrating them and I think taking us a step closer towards some more real life situations where the actions that you're choosing between have different combinations of cognitive, physical effort costs, uncertainty, risk, you know, it becomes quite complicated. That's really interesting because if I think about putting in an effort to a workout and maybe like the physical pain or exhaustion I feel with that, it feels very different to what I would put into I don't know, doing like a maths problem. So that I think that's really fascinating that they're connected. Yes. And I think even in the neurobiological evidence, it's also clear that there's associations between these two. So it's not totally overlapping. And also the correlation we found wasn't totally overlapping. <laughs> One of the smaller sample studies that we did with undergraduates, we did the same procedure and we didn't find that correlation. And we think it's because there's actually a selection bias with university students where if they're going to tend to have, you know, very high academic ability, they might have relatively lower physical ability or the opposite if they were recruited as athletes. And then basically the combination of those two potentially canceling out the correlation, but that's a little nuanced, maybe. That's super interesting. So now we'll go to another one of your experiments that looked at how we could increase our willingness to exert cognitive effort. And can you explain how you use transcranial direct current stimulation to increase cognitive effort and what were the findings of this experiment? Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm really excited about this one. I wanted to give the disclaimer that all the results that I'm talking about have not yet been peer reviewed. So this was in collaboration with Mario Boganov and Ross Otto and some other collaborators at McGill University. So what they did is they administered transcranial direct current stimulation, and they did a kind of stimulation called anodal, where basically you're going to be running an electrical current between two electrodes that are placed on the scalp. So you can imagine one near your forehead and one back in the middle of your skull, and they're targeting this area called frontopolar cortex, which is basically a part of your brain that's in the frontal lobe that we know is involved in cognitive control and also decision making. So what they're going to do is they're running this current and it's increasing the activity. And what they predicted based on the previous literature is that this would actually increase the willingness to exert cognitive effort. So a lot of the times our neuroscience studies are correlational. So you might have seen that this area is more active in the fMRI scan when people are doing this decision making. What transcranial direct stimulation is going to let you do is actively manipulate the brain pattern. And if you have a hypothesis about what that brain area is doing, then you can test that to see how people actually behave under stimulation and under what's called sham stimulation, where it feels to the participant 
they could be getting stimulated, but there actually is not a current running. And so people are going to play the task that I described, the effort foraging task, two times, one week apart. And you're going to look when they were under stimulation versus when they were under sham, did their behavior change? And so what we did is we used these computational models to actually assess, was there a difference in how they were treating the high relative to low effort on and off stimulation? What we're very excited to see was that when participants were under stimulation, they actually became more willing to engage with the high cognitive effort task. And in addition, we looked to see, okay, well, how about when they're doing that cognitive effort you know, when they're in the travel, did this stimulation affect how they did? And we saw that the stimulation did not affect their performance when they were traveling. And so what is this by analogy? When you need to make that choice to do your math problem, these brain areas are helping you to initiate, to go ahead and try out that task. Once you're actually doing it, the stimulation isn't changing your ability to do that math problem. And so it draws out this really critical distinction between your motivation, your willingness to try something out, and your ability. And something we know is that people's ability to do different cognitive control demanding tasks has a lot of variation between people. And this can be something that can be affected by psychiatric disability. This can be affected by genes, you know, a whole host of experiential factors. Those things, I don't think, as much as we would like to enhance cognitive control in that way, I'm not sure that scientists are going to reach that ability. But motivation is something that is changing minute to minute. It's very dynamic, it's very flexible, and just the choice to go ahead and engage and try an activity out, that's often enough. We don't have to be perfect. And so I think in terms of trying to empower people to be reaching goals that are important to them, thinking about targeting these decision-making and motivation processes is really exciting. So this, in a sense, showed that the task can actually be used to measure that and using that same method, you could try out a host of different other things that could manipulate people's willingness to exert cognitive control. That's so cool. And thank you for clarifying, because initially I was like, oh, can we just make everyone a super genius there if we just increase this? But that's really interesting that it's just the that motivation. So, you, you know, after when you use a lot of cognitive effort, you feel tired. Yes. Like, and that's why it feels like a, one of the reasons that we can't just do maths all the time. If you were using this stimulation, would you feel more tired or does it affect that feeling at the end? Or Whoa. How that, is, <laughs> that is a great question. I'm not sure that I can answer that question so much, but I can tell you a very cool theory on cognitive fatigue okay. if you'd like. This is from my mentor, my lab, Jonathan Cohen and Nathaniel Daw, and then one of their students, Mike Agrawal. And they put out this theory paper basically saying that, so let's say that you just did your math homework right. And the reason you're doing your math homework, let's say it's because you're trying to do really well on a math test upcoming. So you could just go and go and go for hours and do math homework. And that would teach you at a certain rate. But if you actually go offline, if you just relax, you don't really use that same part of your brain, what your brain can do is this thing called replay. 
And so it can go over all those experiences that you just had, all that learning content, and it can consolidate it and it can push it from your hippocampus, which is where your short-term experiences are stored, into cortex where you'll get the long-term storage. Basically, their theory goes that you're getting this signal of fatigue, which is telling you to disengage because actually you can become more efficient by replaying your experiences than gathering more experiential information. What I really love, but again, it's purely theoretical, is really thinking about when you have that feeling, I'm fatigued, I want to rest, that break is quite probably serving you. And it's a decision process that your brain also has that you're not necessarily in tune with that is going to help you in the longer term, you know, ace the math test instead of just, oh, I did five problem sets instead of three today. Yeah, because I definitely find that like if I have to think a lot, sometimes going on a walk really helps. Yes. And then I'll come back and I'll be like, oh, now I feel like I can do it. So it's so interesting, all the balances and the brain's just amazing. Yes. And it's all <laughs> it's all higher. It's all hardwired in there. Just got to trust your intuition. I found this episode really interesting because I liked how everything from the beginning, how Laura framed it as everything in this theory, this kind of framework of expected value control theory. And I think a lot of her work focuses on the effort side of it. So the idea of how much effort is it going to require rather than necessarily like the amount of reward that it requires. But I have seen this kind of complementary research that I think is interesting that also uses this transcranial magnetic stimulation that found that on this kind of flip side, when you look at how to increase the value associated with something, so rather than like the effort and the amount of effort that you want to engage in, that if you stimulate the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, so it's kind of in the same region, so still like the front of the brain, this enhances willingness for task completion, but it does this by amplifying your expected outcome value. So it's more kind of targeting the way that you're seeing how how valuable or how much you would want that outcome or how rewarding that outcome would be, which I think is interesting because it feels like this theory could be very useful in that it seems to generate these two types of, from the beginning, the effort that you're putting in and then the value associated with that effort. And I feel like it's some of maybe the most hopeful research that we've looked at because it seems like things like actually work and maybe we could (laughs) actually target things in this way. But with all of this research on this TMS kind of research when it's like, oh, if we have more activation in this place versus this place, I always kind of think of how we can actually implement this because does it go beyond clinical? Does it go to Apple then having these TMS machines that we can use to try to make our tasks more feel like they're more rewarding or feel like the outcome would be more rewarding or somehow allow us to be more motivated to engage in effortful processing or task? Just to be clear, so what that would mean, am I right in thinking... You're doing a maths equation. You initially have a feeling of how good that feels when you get it right. But if you have this increased reward associated with it, that's it's a better feeling if you get that right. Is that the difference? I think that it would be kind of as Laura alluded to, this idea that if you were to 
if you're working towards a goal of getting an A, then you're like that A feels like it would be better um, or that it would feel more rewarding. So I think that's kind of where that works on. Yeah. But yeah, it is interesting to think about how this work, how is that going to be implemented? Because initially when I was listening, I thought, oh, does that mean we can just program everyone to be super hardworking robots? Like that was my first like, oh, no. (laughs) And then, yeah, but then you don't actually get better at the work. So it's not like you become more, what? I don't know if maybe if you are willing to put in more effort, you do become more efficient. I'm not sure. But your ability does. So it's not like all of a sudden you understand the maths better than you did before. It's more just like you're willing to do the equation. So I don't know what kind of robots would be. Would be, I guess, just working really hard but not any better. But I guess that's still something that maybe a company would want us to be doing. (laughs) I feel like a lot of the procrastination advice, though, is just start, you know, and there's all that stuff about just set a five-minute timer and just tell or tell yourself that you're going to do it for five minutes. And then once you start, you're probably going to encounter less resistance. So maybe that that idea of just, as Lauda was saying, like increasing just motivation to engage, even if you're not increasing how good you are at it, like that's really the kind of pain point that is most necessary for increasing like productivity or maybe just if someone's suffering from depression, just something like... Mm getting out and grocery shopping or taking a shower or something like that. So you found that greater anxiety symptoms of major depression were associated with increased willingness to exert cognitive effort. Can you explain this finding and why that might be the case? Yeah, thanks for asking about that study. So this is a study in major depression And I had 60 individuals who experienced major depression to different degrees with different symptoms come in and do the the tasks that I described and a couple other tasks. We asked them about a lot of symptoms. We had a clinician ask them a lot about their symptoms. And then we also had a group of 27 comparison participants who did not meet criteria for any psychiatric diagnoses. So we looked at both the cognitive and physical effort costs or the willingness to exert cognitive and physical effort in the task I described. And the first thing that I predicted based on some previous literature is that physical effort costs would be higher. And you can think of maybe not wanting to get out of bed, maybe it's a little harder to exercise, the types of symptoms, anhedonia and apathy that kind of affect your motivation. And so There's a lot less that's known about cognitive effort, but I would have predicted, okay, yeah, you know, people have certain symptoms where they say, oh, my thinking is a little slower. I can't concentrate. So I thought, yeah, cognitive effort costs, that's probably going to be higher. When I looked, I was quite surprised to see that there was, first off, no group differences between the comparison participants and the major depression participant group. So then I digged in, I said, all right, well, how about how like intense this depression is for someone. And so we had some people who were actively experiencing depression, other people who were in partial remission or remission. And so, okay, maybe there's some type of association there. So we looked at the clinician rating of overall depression within the major depression group. And what we found is 
consistent with what other literature had shown that physical effort costs were higher when someone was experiencing more depression. However, for cognitive effort, the cost was actually lower, which is basically saying that you're going to be showing less of that effect where you avoid that high effort condition. So you're actually willing to go ahead and try out that high effort condition. Overall depression was not associated with how well you perform the task. And there also weren't group differences in how well you perform the task. So we're picking up on something specific to motivation, but I'm kind of scratching my head like, okay, well, what is that going to mean? So I did a really careful parceling out of a bunch of different subdomains of symptoms of depression. So these were things like anhedonia, apathy, cognitive function symptoms, depressed mood, fatigue. So I look at all these different symptoms and I'm saying, okay, well, which ones are driving these general overall associations? And the first one, which is pretty easy to wrap your head around, was participants who were experiencing more anhedonia, which is kind of a lack of pleasure. Rewards are not as enticing. Those participants had higher physical effort costs, so they were less willing to exert physical effort. And this is something that's already been found, and it kind of suggests that when people maybe get into a mode where they're not as active in depression, that it's having to do specifically with these kind of reward-based, oh, just even the prospect of going to meet my friends doesn't really get me enough to get out of bed right now, something like this. Okay, so anhedonia and only anhedonia was explaining that physical effort relationship. I turned to cognitive effort. And the overwhelming symptom that was driving this effect and the only domain of symptoms was anxiety. And so about half of the group of participants would have met diagnostic criteria both for major depression and for some type of anxiety condition. And so in the individuals that had relatively higher levels of anxiety symptoms, those individuals were more willing to exert cognitive effort. They had lower cognitive effort costs. So how we're interpreting that is when you think about symptoms like rumination, replaying a past experience many times, or worry. Before I go here, I need to do a lot of research into where I'm going and think about a lot of potential things that could happen and prepare myself. Those are all cognitively effortful mental operations that you have to do. And what I think is really interesting is those can also be having some foresight and doing planning or also trying to learn a lot from the experiences you had can be really helpful. At the same time, for some people, they would also tell you that it can be distressing or bothersome. And so I think about this finding both as you know a factor that contributes to the symptoms insofar as the fact that your brain is willing to walk down these many paths might contribute to the distressing part of anxiety. But I also think it could be a strength. So for example, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapies for people who chose to go that route can involve a lot of cognitively effortful behavior. You might have to do a lot of worksheets. And so those individuals experiencing high anxiety symptoms 
might be good candidates for ones that are a little bit more demanding in that way. Another thing that I've heard about that's very exciting is something called positive fantasizing. So trying to bootstrap this planning, thinking process towards thinking about more positive potential outcomes that could happen. So I think it's on the one hand, just a finding that helps us orient ourselves towards how can we measure these things and how can we use them to capture these individual variation in a really precise theory informed mechanistic way. And then going off of that, how can we actually help create tools for people based on where they fall in this decision-making manifold to help them make the adjustments that they're looking for. I love the idea of rather than, oh, so you, you think a lot and you have anxiety, like just don't think, which we all know is impossible. Um, but, oh, well, why don't you use that thinking for like these positive, you know, this like potential positive future stars. I mean, I am an anxious person and I just think all the time. So it's all very relatable what you're saying. So the idea of using that is like, okay, well, just use all of that thinking and planning and all the things you can imagine up in, in a positive way. And oh, that's just, I love that so much. Yes. And I know you're an optimism researcher, so <laughs> yeah, yes. I feel some collaborations coming on. I think that's a great example too, of trying to think that we are who we are. We have rich individual personalities. How can we both help you out, but look for solutions that aren't about fundamentally changing the way that your brain takes in and processes information. Yeah which frankly can be an unrealistic goal anyways, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, a very frustrating genre of advice. Oh, don't worry. So how do you feel about your engaging in effortful tasks, Beth? I feel like you're pretty good at it from what I've seen. <laughs> well, it was funny because after this, I was wondering if I could I was like, oh, so is this more of a state of mind? Do you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, am I just not doing, could I do more work if I change my state of mind around this idea of cognitive effort? So I'm writing up this draft of a paper at the moment and and you get tired. And as we were speaking about, like that being tired is probably a good thing because you need to have a rest and consolidate things. But I was like, oh, what if, so what if I can change that as if I was getting there? <laughs> brain stimulation and improve my productivity, which I don't think was the purpose at all of, of what I should have taken from this research. I was thinking, oh, if I change when I feel tired, not that I am not able to do it, just it's just this effort idea rather than, oh, this is too hard for me to do. I don't have the ability to do it. That actually really helped with, with my work. So knowing that so it feels like for you, the the resistance part is that you almost have like a fixed mindset about things that you're like, oh, maybe I'm not good enough yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah. Also, it all goes back to growth mindsets. Is what you're saying. <laughs> okay. Carol Dweck, love it. <laughs> I do think being aware of that, of this idea of this cognitive effort. I don't know. It, I thought it was an interesting thing to then go and do your tasks and be aware of that. That's what's coming up, not other things. Yeah. I think it's interesting to think about in this research and kind of the, 
in the lineage of research on motivation and engagement and effort, because there was a while where there was a lot of research going into this theory. And it was, it seemed like for a while, it was kind of the dominant theory of, of motivation, which was this ego depletion theory. And that theory said that it's, I mean, it was super popular, like CEOs and stuff. And this is why like Obama, Mark Zuckerberg, they all only have like one outfit or they choose their outfits the day before because there was this idea that this ego depletion theory stated that after a certain amount of time, you can no longer control the decisions that you're making. So you can't like have that type of control exerted over yourself anymore. And for that reason, you need to kind of think of your self-control as like a fuel tank. And over the course of the day, if you make too many decisions, then you're just like running the fuel down. And after a certain point, you're no longer able to engage because there's no fuel left. And this was extremely influential. And what was interesting was that this was one of this the, the theories that kind of came under fire when people realized that there were a lot of studies in psychology that didn't hold up. So when people tried to redo them, they didn't really seem to work the same way and they, the effects weren't found. But these findings, I think what's interesting about it is that if you believe that ego depletion is real, then you're going to be tired after you've made a few decisions. And I think that kind of comes to just beliefs about maybe also growth beliefs, but beliefs about yourself. If you think I know that I'm the type of person or that it's just a universal truth that you can only get 10 things done in the morning, you can only make 10 decisions, then if I have like, I had too many teas to choose from in the morning, then that's going to ruin my ability to grade a paper later on in the day. But there's recent research that shows that this is not maybe necessarily the case and that motivation is, seems like it's something that you can replenish. And there's more and more research showing the importance of kind of like which I think speaks to Laura's work about getting going. And once you get going, it's much more easy to kind of keep the ball rolling. And this idea of like almost inertia where like if you start your day very productively, then you're more likely to continue your day productively. Whereas if you start your day and you like watch TV for two hours, then it's probably going to be harder for you to then write your really intense paper that you have to write or submit your journal article. So I think that those beliefs, like as you kind of showed with this separation of the way that you were thinking about ability versus effort, how that really just influenced you to keep going. I think that shows the importance of these theories. And when you believe one of the theories, they can really come true. Yeah. And I don't know which theory I I implicitly believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because do you, how, yeah. How do you feel about your cognitive effort? Really bad. Because I feel like we're, I don't know if people know this, but we're very different. Uh, maybe they don't, maybe people can't hear it <laughs> in this particular way. But I, I, I'm a burst, I'm a bursts girl. I'm not a steady state girl. I want to be a steady state girl, but I am a, if there's no pressure, if there's no deadline, pretty hard to get it done. Whereas Beth, when she was visiting, I couldn't believe it. Every day, 9am, going to get her little matcha, going into the lab, doing a little bit of work, slow and steady. And I feel like I was just not working for three days and then burst of doing everything on my list for a month. And then Beth was just like slowly doing her little thing, like very calmly and then going to yoga. So (laughs) because 
I also, I mean, I've said this, I'm a, an anxious person, so I don't procrastinate. And it was interesting the finding about because and people who are anxious are maybe more willing to engage in cognitive effort. And I wonder if that's got something to do with the way. So I don't really ever procrastinate. But I. But think- the anxiety thing, it's kind of funny to me because I feel like when I procrastinate, it often comes from a place of anxiety yeah. where I'm like, overthinking what I'm supposed to do and it just feels like an insurmountable task because I've overanalyzed all the little steps that I feel like I need to do to get to like you know to reach the mountaintop so it doesn't feel like I can even I it doesn't feel like I know how to even take the first step because it's so complicated of a task because I'm anxious about it yeah I think it can work in both ways because I know people have that that experience is very common and that's why like a lot of really amazing people find it hard to do work because of overthinking it in that way and the pressure and stuff like that but I think I'm just so bad at being idle as Ava also noticed when I was visiting her I just like need to be doing things but you do things that are healthy like you're not you're not you know I don't know going and you know, getting your your matcha and then like sitting and talking with the barista for five hours to distract yourself, which I think is what people normally do. And I think a lot of the hard part of getting moving on something, especially now, is that it's so easy to distract yourself with something that in the short term will be much more rewarding, kind of in line with that theory that Lauda was talking about too, that if something is effortful and then something else is not effortful and you feel like you're going to get a nice reward from that, then why wouldn't you engage in that? And I feel like you, for some reason, don't suffer from that. So what's the secret? (laughs) It's funny. I find the work that I do so rewarding and it gives me (laughs) and I get so much out of it. Same with doing the podcast. The, The reward value is like, even if no one listened to it, if you guys didn't listen to it, I still, I just, it gives me, I always message A for that. Like, oh, this just gives me so much happiness. And that's the same with my work. I feel really lucky that in life I've found something that gives me so much meaning and purpose. And I know I'm very lucky to have found that. Sorry, that right. I, it must sound so annoying. Sorry, everyone. No, <laughs> I can- no easy fix, except maybe stimulating the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex <laughs> i can also be a hot mess a lot of the time i don't want to sound like <laughs> ava's also seen me in other states so. that's a different story <laughs> but you are good at getting work done so i guess you have to yeah it's the annoying thing if you actually have to find something that you like yeah but well, i think everyone well yeah i think people can i'm lucky that i found mine and i yeah good for you Beth. <laughs> Okay, well, we all have to do some soul searching. Maybe it's maybe it's the therapy. Yeah, I was going to say therapy. I've had a lot of therapy. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Beth. Just work on yourself. Just work on yourself. A lot of exercise. A kickbox now, you know. <laughs> okay, Beth actually just does all the boring things. She's fulfilled. She's happy. She exercises. She spends time with friends. No, no brain stimulation is going to help us here. It's too bad. <laughs> Would you like to just finish with talking about what you're excited about, what's coming up next? So where I'm trying to really take my research 
direction next is I talked in this interview about thinking about the ability to do cognitive control, demanding tasks, and also the motivation and decision-making process. But all of the studies that I talked about were what we call cross-sectional. And so I'm looking at a group of different individuals at one time point. I think in order to truly dissociate those two things, I actually need to have more information about your ability, this kind of stable component, anytime that I test you over weeks or months, something that's not really varying as I test you, and then your motivation, which is driving fluctuations from session to session. And then in that context, looking at, if I ask you certain questions, you know, how are you feeling? How anxious are you? You know, are you sleepy? Have you eaten? If I start asking you about different contextual factors, can I pinpoint the types of factors that end up promoting your motivation? So what is it for you as a person, as a profile, where you're actually performing at your best? And if I can see that from you, can I then actually personalize or individualize some type of return of results to the participant where they actually see you're really affected by like a good mood and when you're sleep deprived that you're like very sensitive to that, which is a result that I would get. <laughs> and this is going to go into the field they call precision psychiatry or precision computational psychiatry. So trying to get a really good grasp on all these variations. And the one extra thing that I'll say in all of this is another thing that we've been increasingly hearing about and realizing in our field is all of the unmeasured differences that have to do with factors in classical laboratory psychology tasks we don't tend to look at. So thinking about environmental factors, cultural factors, practice that you have in these research settings, neurodivergence, disability, experiences with ableism, experiences with discrimination, people are going to be so affected and these are going to guide their choices and it's something that we tend to just paper over and I think therefore draw some incorrect conclusions about, like I said at the beginning, when we put people on this unidimensional scale and we say, oh, look, you're very good at this and you're very bad at this and we don't acknowledge all the contextual factors under which we're looking at how you perform a certain task. And so I'm really excited in addition to thinking longitudinally and individualized to start bringing in the environment that people are in. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Oh,